I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles uh, tonight to the book of Exodus. I know I'm doing a series, but I didn't, I didn't want to leave on, you know, Revelation 14, the judgment of God. You know, that's not the, that's not the way you want to leave your, your church family. So, you know, I was praying, and I really felt impressed to preach this particular message And I know that many people this morning were deeply helped and encouraged by it. So Exodus chapter 15, we're only going to look at a few verses, beginning in verse 22. Excuse me. Now, Philip Yancey is a well-known and very popular Christian writer. And he wrote a book a number of years ago, probably more than 20 years ago, uh, called Disappointment with God. And it really talks about how a lot of times we have expectations of God, and when they're not realized, it creates such disillusionment in our hearts and minds. And a lot of times we just don't have an understanding of what's happening. And so he tells the story of a young man, he doesn't give his name, who came to speak to him, and he said as he was sitting across, you know, know, he's in the living room, and they're across the table, uh, coffee table, and they're chatting with each other. He noticed that, you know, that there was all the body language of anger. How many have ever seen that? You know, you can tell it's mounting, it's building up. And he said his anger was growing, it seemed like a a tumor inside of him, drawing nourishment from some of his difficult experiences in life. You know, as a young boy, his mother had abandoned him, so there was a tremendous sense of rejection. I mean, that's, that's very devastating to have your mother abandon you. And then, more recently, he had applied for a job, thought he had it, and was rejected from that job. He was deeply crushed by that. And then his fiance, you know, decided at the last minute she didn't want to continue on in the relationship, and she ended it. So, you know, three places of rejection. And so he, he was questioning, why had God allowed his life to turn sour? And Yancey continues, my mind whirled as I tried to sort through the uncatalogued emotions to discern what he was really asking. After all, he had come to see me, a Christian, rather than a therapist, presumably because he saw the Christian faith as the fountainhead of his disillusionment. In other words, he wanted to ask, you know, a Christian, why would God allow these great disappointments to happen in his life? My friend insisted he had tried being faithful to God with disastrous results. Like he said, no mother, no fiance, no job. And then he asked this amazing question. What about all the Bible's promises of personal reward and happiness? And, and that is a great question, you know, because a lot of times we make you know, and it seems to indicate, especially the book of Proverbs, that if we do certain things, God is obligated to do these things, you know, and so we can develop a very mechanistic understanding of God. We, we think in our minds, if I do A, B, and C, therefore God's obligated to do X, Y, and Z. And so when he doesn't do that, we get really upset with God. We say, hey, I did my part, God. Why aren't you doing your part? And so we kind of put God in a box, how many know when you do that, it's going to cause you grief? And so I, what I want to do tonight is kind of shatter that myth in your mind that, you know, life is that neat. As a matter of fact, I have discovered life is messy. I have discovered things do not work exactly the way you think they ought to. Anybody discovered that yet? You know, it works out a lot different than you think. But yet, I think God's plan for our lives, when we look back in hindsight, and we can look at some of these disappointments in our life, if we have matured and grown through those experiences and not remain bitter and angry and underdeveloped, I think we're going to begin to have a whole new appreciation of what God was doing in our lives. And that's the thing that I want you to see tonight. As a matter of fact, 
As he was reviewing that sequence of choices he had made in his career, his education, and in his romance, he had begged God for some measure of direction, but he felt like God was not really making it clear to him. And I know that that is an element that we all experience in our lives where it doesn't always seem like, wouldn't it be nice? God, just tell me what to do sometimes. Wouldn't it be awesome? I remember as a young pastor, I'd say, God, just tell me and I'll do it. You know, But God wants us to not just be little automated ro- robots that he's just programming what he wants done. He gives us a gift called free choice. And he's trying to help us develop and mature so that we will make wise choices in our lives based on our knowledge of God's word and our knowledge of God's character. That we can understand who he is and we can make these good choices and then we can learn to live with outcomes and not get so upset all the time. So, you know, years ago I wrote a little statement. Unrealized expectations usually creates great disappointment or, you know, disillusionment. And, you know, if you think about what is it to be disillusioned, but it's actually you have an illusion that hasn't become reality. You're, you're, you're living in, a, in an illusionary, illusionary world. It's just a fantasy. So we, I think we ask the question and we wonder at times why distressful situations unfold around us when maybe desperately doing our best to serve God. And so I'm going to say this. There's no guarantee that when you're on the top of your game, you're doing everything God wants you to do, that life's going to work out exactly the way you think. And to prove that to you, all you got to do is look at the book of Job. In the book of Job, Job was a godly man. It says he was blameless, and he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was doing the right stuff, and yet his life just kind of cratered and fall, it fell apart, did it not? And so what we read in the first two chapters of the book of Job, which is the prologue, we discovered that there was a test in his life. And I'm going to suggest this strongly to you, there's an idea that God is going to test our lives. And as a matter of fact, if you don't believe that, then go to Genesis chapter uh, 22, where the Bible says, and God tested Abraham. And so God brings tests in our lives to find out, for us to find out, what's really within us. Because I already think God knows what's inside of us. Don't you think God knew what was in Job? Of course he knew. Do you you think God knew what was in Abraham's heart? Of course he knew that. But did Job and Abraham know what was in their hearts? And the answer is not really. And I don't think you and I fully know what's inside of us. We may think we know ourselves, but we really don't. And until we're tested, we have no idea how we're going to respond. Isn't that true? Boy, it's really quiet in here. You, You guys disagree with that? No, okay, I just, come on guys, come to life here. <laughs> All right, I'm just trying to, you know, make sure that we're, 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 we're engaging here. Okay, so what, what I'm going to try to talk about today is what shapes character. How does character get developed in our life, and why is that so important in our lives? And I think we're going to look at three elements that help shape our character, and the first one is how we address moments of crisis in our lives. And I believe that that is a great indicator of where we're at. Oh, please don't tell me that, Pastor, because when crisis hits, I don't always respond in the right way. But I believe that God is trying to teach us and develop us and help us so that when future crisis comes, we handle things a lot differently. We learn, hopefully, from failure and difficulty, right? You know, if I don't know if you guys realize this. You know, it's so funny. We, we send people to school, and then they get upset when they don't get A's all the time. Well, folks, if you know everything, you don't need to be in school. It's part of learning. 
And I, I want to just throw this suggestion across to you tonight. I want to throw this idea across to you tonight. Don't you think that living life is all about learning things? And you and I haven't arrived yet, and we're all learning, and we're learning sometimes through failure and difficulty in our lives. And uh, hopefully we're, we're gaining uh, information, understanding, and wisdom. So what happens usually when a challenging moment or a trial or a test comes into our life, the first thing that happens is we ask ourselves, why is this happening to me? You know, don't you ever say, why me? Why is this happening? I mean, I thought you were a caring God. You know, and sometimes we, we sit down and we think to ourselves, you know, if I was God, I wouldn't be allowing a person to go through what I'm going through. That's kind of how we think. We put God in our place. And yet I think God knows that he needs to develop something inside of us and he's allowing it to happen. And we need to begin to understand that God isn't against us and he's not uncaring or he's unkind. And we're going to discover that as we read this story. So we're always intrigued by the question, you know, God could have prevented this. Some of us think this way, you know, God could have prevented this, but why is he allowing this to happen? But as I earlier stated, when I talked about the disciples, who made them get into the boat? Jesus. Did Jesus know that there was going to be a storm upcoming? Of course he did. Why didn't he run down there and stop it? Because we know he can speak to the wind and waves. He did that on another occasion. You know, why did he wait all night long while those guys were straining at the oars? They were learning a lesson. That's exactly right, Carol. And how many know we are amazingly self-sufficient and we look to ourselves and God has to empty ourselves of our self-sufficiency. And boy, is that ever difficult to teach us how to depend upon him. So let's pick up our story. Here are the Israelites, and uh, they are in the land of slavery. They're in bondage, and then not just for a few years, folks. If you study it, they spent 400 years in Egypt, and you know a good chunk of that time, they were in slavery. And a lot of people were born in slavery, they lived in slavery, and they died in slavery. Is that not true? true. Yes, it is. What about all those people? Well... God was with them. And the Bible says, and God heard the cry of their distress. And God prepared a deliverer to come and help them. And that's who Moses is. And Moses had to be developed. And it took God a while to develop Moses. Moses had to be, he was 80 years old. So that whole time, 80 years, they were in slavery going through all this. We know probably longer than that. But it was really intense by the time Moses was born because they were killing all the male children of that time. Isn't that true? So a very difficult time. And so Moses comes on the scene. God had prepared this leader to go and help the people. And they get there, and Moses shows up. And then we start reading in the book of Exodus these amazing plagues that are happening against the Egyptians. And you ever thought about it? Why did God allow that judgment to come to the Egyptians? Because they had oppressed these people for so long. And they were abusing these people. And so that's the natural outcome of oppressing people is that one time you will be oppressed. You're sowing something. And now God is raining his plagues on these Egyptians. And he's making a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Isn't that amazing? So while it's bad for the Egyptians, it's really good for the Israelites. And they're like, wow, look at this. God is doing these amazing things on our behalf. And then there is that delicious moment. When they're free. 
Now, I, I can't even imagine this. Born in slavery, toiling in slavery, and then one day, you're gloriously free. Could you, what, what would that be like? What would that be like? How many would say that would be such an amazing moment, wouldn't it? Anybody here, could, can you get any idea of what it would be like to be liberated? And yet we have that idea somewhat when we're living in this society and we're living in our ignorance and we're living in darkness and we're living in sin. And many times that creates all kinds of negative experiences in our life from addictions to broken relationships and all the hurt that sin creates in our lives. And then one day we meet Jesus and he sets us free. I mean, that's the closest thing that we can relate to that redemptive moment. And then God leads them. And listen to what it says here in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 20. After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire of light. So now God's guiding them and they can see it. How many know if you're in a dark night with no other, you know, artificial lights and all of a sudden the fire's there at nighttime, how many are going to see the light? How can you miss it, right? And then in the daytime, you're in a desert and usually what you get is just pure sunshine, no clouds, and all of a sudden there's a big cloud. Maybe it's even casting a shadow and giving shade to his people, right? And so the cloud is there and the fire is there and when the fire and the cloud lift and start moving. The camp packed up and started moving with God. So the question is, who was leading them? Well, God was. But how many know in the time of crisis, we kind of lose sight of God? Does anybody realize that? And you know, when, when life is good, we can see God. When life is good, we go, wow, this is so good. Thank you, God. What a way to bless my life. Woo, I'm really enjoying this. But when trials come, we go, God, where are you? You know, like, where did you go? It's like you've disappeared on me. And so he leads them by the Red Sea. And we know the story. Let me re- recall it for us. Well, the Egyptians changed their mind. They went, wow, free laborers just disappeared. What, did we, what were we thinking? And they go after these guys. And this is like the major power in the world, you know, losing this great economic force. And how many know people are motivated by economics? Anybody know that? And so they go after these slaves and they go, there they are, camped. What stupid idiots. They're camped on the edge of the Red Sea. No way to escape. And the Israelites are in absolute panic and terror. They go, there's no hope for us. We're going to be wiped out. And Moses says, stand still and see the salvation of your God. And we know the story. Moses hits the rod. The sea begins to part. And we have the first great aquarium. Because right, the water's split and they're walking through. And how many know the water's piling up? And as they're walking by, I'm seeing little kids going, hey, look at that fish over there. I mean, I don't know what it was like. It would have been pretty amazing, right? You ever thought about, wouldn't it be awesome to be time traveling? You could just drop in on the Red Sea experience and walk through the aquarium with the Israelites. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? It'd be a little terrifying at first when you know the water hadn't opened up and this army's behind you and it it looks kind of menacing, but then all of a sudden the water parts and you're walking across on dry ground. It says, by faith, they walked across the Red Sea. But how many know just because someone else can do it doesn't mean you can do it? And the Egyptians made an assumption. They thought if they can do it, we can do it. Wrong. That's presumption on their part. And they went in after the Israelites and we know the story. The Israelites got off on the other side looking back. They could see these charioteers racing towards them. And they thought, now we're in trouble. God says, no, you're not. I set them up for disaster. All of a sudden, the waters closed in on them. And they drowned. You know, 
Now, when you think your life is in jeopardy and there's a foe against you, this is a physical foe that's going to destroy you, and all of a sudden you've been rescued. How many know that people got a little excited on the other side? They were delirious with joy, and they actually wrote a few songs, and they had a party, and they were celebrating on the edge of the Red Sea. We read about in chapter 15, they were declaring, God's a mighty warrior. Who's like him? This is amazing. And then all these bodies are starting to float to the surface, and they end up on the shore side. You know, I can see these guys plundering these guys from their equipment and all this kind of stuff. Isn't that true? Yeah, you, gotta get, you have to use a little imagination. You know, I've got a good imagination. Now, God always has a purpose for our crisis. Are you hearing this, my, my friends? God has a purpose for your crisis. He was preparing his people for a future day and a future challenge. How many know they would have never been able to go into the promised land without having the Red Sea experience? How many know that's true? They had to see that God was able to take care of them against a, a, a powerful army. You know, once you know God can do it, then you go, hey, you know, God can do it. I mean, if he can do this, he can do that. And when you and I go through crisis and God delivers us in that crisis and God does a work in our lives, when we come to the next crisis, we go, you know what? I know what God's like. He's done this before for me. I've been here before. This is not my first rodeo. You know, I'm going to see what God's going to do in my life at this moment. What an exciting thought. And so God uses the crises in our lives to prepare us. And then the immediate benefit in crisis is always this. God always reveals who he is. Now, didn't you pick that up in the story that gave in Gospel of Mark? You know, here's Jesus walking on the water. How many go, wow. You know, why did Jesus walk on water? Because he could show them who he is. Do you know, you and I can't walk on water in the summertime when the wave's blowing. See, only God's a water walker. And Jesus is walking on the water. And then as he goes by, he's really demonstrating like the Moses story. He's revealing who he is. It's such an amazing picture. And in every crisis, God wants to make himself known to us. He wants to reveal himself to us in the midst of our crisis. Isn't that a beautiful thought? I love it. But, you know, usually what we're doing in the middle of our crisis is what? We're complaining. We're whining. We're blaming. We're doing all kinds of funny things. But we're certainly not looking for God to walk on water. We're not looking for God to part the water. Usually we're too busy focused on the army that's behind us or the wind that's causing us to strain at the oars. That's usually our challenge, isn't it? So let's pick up our story. Chapter 15 In verse 22, it says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. Now, that word, led Israel, it's an interesting word. That's not your normal word in the Hebrew language. And so it's fun to read different people who are translators translate this word, led. And I was reading one translator, and it says, And Moses pressed Israel. In other words, he made them go into the wilderness. It's almost the same idea that Jesus made them get into the boat. This was not option. Now, why would people be resistant to go into the desert? 
Well, it's not a nice place. You're right. I mean, here we are camped by the Red Sea and we're kind of having a party and there's victory and we're spoiling these guys. And so some of the uh, early or many commentators, including early Jewish ones, speculate that the Israelites were not eager to set off in the desert, perhaps because they were too busy gathering spoil from the bodies of the drowned Egyptians. In other words, life is good. And how many know nobody wants to move from prosperity to austerity? Do you know what I mean? Nobody wants to move from the good life to this life of struggle and difficulty. How many know that's true? true? Remember when Premier Ralph Klein decided to balance the budget? Some of you are young, you may not know the story, but he actually went on an austerity program and he said, we're not going to have any debt in Alberta. And he literally led our province to a debt-free situation. And that is good. And you know, people were rejoicing when he announced it. No, they weren't. They were madder than a bunch of hornets and upset because it affected everybody, right? Everybody had to tighten their wallets and all the rest of it. Come on now. We all lived through that. At least some of us did. We all made it. it wasn't that good? Yes. Yeah. He actually understood economics 101. You know, economics 101 says you cannot spend more than you take in. You know, we won't go any further. I could say all kinds of things, but I'm not going to go there. But I'm just illustrating this. But we all know that it's really difficult for us to move from the good life to the challenging life. And we don't usually go, here, my Lord, send me. I want to go for a challenge right now, right? Not too many soldiers volunteer for the suicide mission. Isn't that true? That's difficult. We don't want difficult. We want nice. We, don't, we want blessing, not hardship. How many say that's true, Pastor? True. Isn't that true? Hey, come on. We're not masochistic. We don't want difficulty. We want a simple life. Keep it easy. Don't make it hard, right? You know, I'm, I'm texting, you know, texting on the phone to my youngest daughter, Rachel. Some of you know her. She doesn't live at home anymore. She moved to Edmonton. She's an Edmontonian. Wow. And she's going to the U of A. And she's studying to be a teacher because she feels God's calling her to do that. How many know being a teacher is a very challenging job? Some of you have done it. And how many know it's even more challenging in the environment today? And Rachel says to me, Dad, I want to teach in the public system because the kids there need Christian teachers who will love them. Right? That's a challenge. And so if you want a challenging job, how is God going to prepare you for that? Well, I'm going to make everything easy for you. Is that how he's going to prepare you for a challenging role? No, he's going to create some hardship. He's going to create some difficulty. He's going to create some frustration. Why would God do that? Well, God's not loving. He doesn't love me. Why is he causing all this difficulty in my life? Because he's strengthening and challenging and developing. That's right, spiritual muscles. So we're texting, and, and so she's, you know, she had a really tough week a few weeks back. It was really bad, and, you know, she's... I'm, we're a parent, so she can just unload and, you know, and we're trying to encourage her, you know. And so I keep checking in. How is it going? Are things better? We're praying for you. Hang in there. I'm, I'm coaching her, right, you know. This is what it's going to take to be that great teacher that God's called you to be. It's going to be challenging. You've got to go through some tough things to be a great teacher. Don't you think I'm giving her good advice? I'm not telling her, hey, you know, just quit, give in, you know. 
Be like, you know, Moses could have easily said, God, I'm resigning from this job. These people are challenging. We'll look at that in a minute. But, you know, so we're texting back and forth. And uh, so I text her and I said, yeah, boy, this last week was a challenging week for me. And some of you guys are going, really, Pastor? You actually have a challenging week? Of course, I'm a human being. And so I have to have the right attitude, you know. True. Hey, I can't talk about these things and not experience them. You got to experience them. You know, you have to live through this stuff. And so she, I love this. I said, I wrote this to her. We're all learning through this journey of life. If it was always easy, we would not be strong or grow spiritually. But I really loved her response. This, this tells me where she's at. I get this little text back from her and it says this. This is very true, exclamation point. And then she says this. Rejoice in the tests exclamation point. I'm going, she's getting it. She's telling me, she's saying, dad, we have to rejoice in these challenging moments. And then I got excited because, you know, I'm going, oh, I like this because she sounds like the apostle James. And James says it this way, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Isn't that how you guys respond to trial? Oh, Lord, thank you for this trial. Come on now. Aren't you guys rejoicing in it? Don't you say, God, thank you, thank you, what you've just made my day today. You know, my coffee fell on my pants. You know, somebody's honking behind me, you know. Up, I got a bill I didn't expect, and the people around me are grumpy today. Thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you for this day. Right? You guys are all doing that, aren't you? You're rejoicing in that? Of course. But here's what it says. Now, why should we rejoice in life's tests? Because you know that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. You know, this is not what our culture has today. Our culture has no perseverance. It's in short supply. Because we want to rescue everybody. We don't want anybody to have any sort of hardship. We don't want to have, you know, them to struggle one iota. That should not happen to any of us. Well, we're so unlike God. God says, I don't mind letting you struggle. I want you to develop. I have a goal for you, and it's a lot different than what you have for yourself. You see, what we really want is a life that's easy. We want to be blessed. We want everything to come our way. We want everyone to love us. Come on now. God goes, that's not what I want for you. I got a different plan. You say, what's the plan, Lord? I want you to become like me. I want you to grow up. I want you to mature. I want you to be able to have perseverance. I want it so that when difficult times come your way, they don't define you anymore because you're mature. You're able to handle life's most challenging moments and you have character. You're able to move through the challenging things of life because you're full of love and grace. Oh, that's amazing, Lord. I like that. I like what the end product is. I just don't like the process to get there, right? True, it's the way it works. And then he says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. 
You know that word telos in the Greek, telos, T-E-L-O-S, is the end product. It's the goal that God has in mind for us. Not lacking anything. Isn't it amazing that you and I don't have to have what's around us create joy for us? Isn't it amazing that you and I can have a life that even when life is crazy and nothing makes sense and there's pain and sorrow and loss, that that's not what makes us content or joyful? Isn't it amazing that God can bring us to that place? That's his goal for you, that you're going to be like him. So, I love these verses. Then it says, we read in our text, there was a crisis that came before them. And Gordon Wenham says this, but as often in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, he says this, a great experience of God or act of faith is usually followed by doubt or disobedience. So it tends to be a cycle in the Old Testament. They do good, then they don't do so good. Isn't that amazing? That cycle keeps reoccurring. And in this instance, the crossing of the Red Sea is followed by three episodes of grumbling against Moses and by implication against the Lord and and whom they blame for bringing them into this deadly wilderness where they will probably die. Now, it says in verse 23, when they came to Merah, they could not drink its water because it was Merah. It was bitter. That's the Hebrew word, Merah. It's bitter. That's why the place is called uh, Merah. Now, I want, to, I want to just think about how challenging this moment was. Now, imagine with me, we're in a desert. We just did prayer and fasting for three days, and some of you had no food for three days. Try no water for three days. Oh, by the way, you're in a desert where you're dehydrating. Oh, by the way, there's two to three million people and you got your cattle with you. And I can just imagine, you know, the animals are braying and bellowing their complaints. Can you hear it? Can you hear the journey? We're on it now, folks. The animals are crying out. They're thirsty. The day passes. There's no change. More desert, more heat, no water. People are coming to Moses. Hey, the situation's getting critical, Moses. You know, this is hard on the old people. This is hard on the kids, Moses. People are getting fearful. Not a pleasant experience. Finally, on the third day, water sighted. I can just imagine the pace starts moving a little quicker. How many of you know that probably happen, right? And then there's people starting to run toward the water. Then there's people diving into the water to drink it. And the moment they taste it, it's undrinkable. They're spitting it out. It's terrible. They cannot drink the water. How many know that when that happens, you're, you're crushed? How many have ever set yourself up, you know, you've been in this thing, and all of a sudden you think, deliverance! And then, it doesn't happen. We're disappointed. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. You ever been set up and then disappointed? And I mean, it's really crushing. These guys are crushed. And they have no idea where the next water is. And they're going, Moses, you've let us down. They're upset with Moses. They're really upset with Moses. You know, Moses could have easily said, okay, I've done this job. I, I just can't handle these guys. They're all upset. I resign, God. I quit. But you see, Moses didn't resign. You go, why? Because Moses had now lived to be 80 years old, had walked with God. God had done so much in his life. He knew the disappointments of life and he knew that God was still in control. You know? So often when you and I are in this situation, we allow our fears 
to drown out our faith. Isn't that true? You know, we start seeing the problem as greater than God. Come on now. We kind of question. If God is there, why isn't he doing something? If God is loving, why doesn't he show some sort of concern right now? This is a desperate situation. You can appreciate where they were at, you know. So how do we respond to life's disappointments? How do we respond to life's testings? Isn't that a great question? How do we respond? Do we get like these guys? (laughs) Crazy Israelites, complaining, upset, grumbling, mad, frustrated. Come on now, let's be honest. But let me summarize what John Oswell writes regarding this book of Exodus. You know, Exodus means a way out. He says it this way. In one sense, this should be the end of the book, considering that they've been delivered out of Egypt, delivered through the Red Sea. I mean, the Greek name Exodus means way out. Haven't they been taken out? But then he says, the people were now out of Egypt, so Exodus was over. But in fact, the story was far from ended. And that leads us to question, the way out of what? And he says, if they're out of Egypt but they're not yet out. What more is there to get out of? Great question. Problem Israel needed is to get out of not merely Egyptian bondage. They had to get to know God. They needed to... Let me say it to you this way. I'm going to summarize it. They were out of Egypt, but Egypt wasn't out of them. They didn't know who God was. And isn't it true when we first come to Christ, you know, we really don't know God. We think we do. We just met him. This is awesome. I got forgiven and saved. But the moment the first crisis comes, everything becomes, what's going on? I don't know who God is anymore. Why isn't God doing something? We have to learn about the ways of God. That's a lifetime journey, folks. It really is. So why is it necessary for God to test us? You ever ask yourself that question? Why is that necessary? that we might learn to trust him and not ourselves or the ways of this world. And by the way, that's far more difficult than we think. You know, it's not hard to not want to just enjoy what this life has to offer and not live ultimately for God's purpose. In other words, most people want to be left alone and do their own thing. They really don't want to live for God's ultimate purpose for their lives. And you know what the sad thing about that is? I'll spell it out for you. If you embrace what the world has to offer, which promises you everything, and when you're done, they'll spit you out and they'll leave you with nothing. That's what the world gives you. The glamour, it's like Las Vegas. It's in the middle of a desert. It looks really beautiful at night with its lights, but in the daytime, it's pretty gaudy. And that's what life is like without God. But you put God into the equation, and even though it's the darkest night and the most challenging situation, if God is there... It's like, this is the most amazing thing to watch what God will do in our lives. But let me move on to the second element that de- to shape our character. And it's simply, if we allow critical or a complaining attitude to develop in our heart. And this is something God has to take out of us. And it's a challenge, by the way. Right? Yes. Come on now, human nature. When we have unpleasant trees happen in our life, we tend to complain about them. Anybody here ever complain? Okay, so the people grumbled in verse 24 against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Now, it certainly was a legitimate question. How are we going to survive? What's going to happen to us now? Where's God in my mess? They began to attack Moses. That's human nature. You always have to blame somebody. How many know when life isn't working, we look around and say, who can I blame? 
And how many know it's generally the leaders? It's their fault. They brought us. They got us in this mess. They blame Moses, you know. It was said of John Wesley, he was a Christian leader, that in spite of his success and renown as a revivalist, he was noted for his humility and therefore contentment were indelible marks of his character. Wesley had an aversion to complaint and worry. I don't know if you know this. This is what he said. One author said, John Wesley said a child of God had no more right to grumble than to curse or swear. Now, everybody in this room knows intuitively that for me to take the name of the Lord in vain is a terrible thing. Isn't it kind of an awful thing for a Christian to be taking God's name in vain? We all know intuitively that's, a, that's wrong. I can't do that. But we don't think of complaining and grumbling in the same equation, do we not? And yet Wesley now is equating grumbling and complaining to taking the Lord's name in vain. Is he not doing that? Yes, he is. He's saying that's just as bad. Do you ever think of your complaining as being sinful? Wesley is saying, by the grace of God, I will never fret. That means worry. I'll repine at nothing. I'm discontented with nothing. What's he saying? He's saying, whatever God brings my way, I'm happy. You know, I had to learn this. You know, I'm a pastor. I remember one time, this was, you know, not quite two decades ago. I'm sitting... Get this, I've told the story before. I'm sitting on vacation in a beach in Vancouver. It's pretty nice. How many think that's pretty nice? But yet I was, I was complaining to God in my heart. You know, how many know God hears that? He's going, you know, so he straightened me out. I had a little straighten out time. I wasn't talking to anybody. I was just kind of bemoaning a number of things in my life and, you know, what I thought my life should be like at this point. And God was going to have a little chat with me. And I was reading Psalm 16, and he said, I've given you a delightful inheritance. You know, I've blessed you. The, the, the lines have fallen to you in pleasant places. In other words, God says, the boundary lines, the way I've crafted your life have fallen to you in pleasant places. In other words, God says, this is as good as, this is so good what I've done for you, and yet you're complaining about it. And then I kind of reminded myself, I'm looking out and here's this beautiful beach. I'm, over, I'm looking at the, the water. I love the water in the mountains. I'm, that's just how I'm wired. And I'm looking at all of this and I'm, I'm realizing how stupid this is that I'm bemoaning life and God is saying, listen, I've blessed you. And I'm going, yeah, you have God. You really have blessed me. And as I began to think about it, my attitude shifted. And pretty soon I said to myself, my life is so good As a matter of fact, I know that if I need anything, my Father will give it to me. And if I don't have it, I don't need it. You know, a lot of us think we have needs that are not needs at all. They're just wants. And God says, if I gave that to you, that would do inestimable damage to you. You know, but yeah, but, you know, what's his name has it, God? God goes, yeah, but he can handle it. You can't. You ever thought of that? God says, if I give you what I'm giving them, that might destroy you. I know exactly what you need. I've given you exactly what you need. I'm going, oh, thank you, Lord. My whole attitude changed. You know, isn't it amazing when you're in the presence of God and he does an adjustment on you and you change your mind and you come in agreement with God. By the way, that's what repentance is. And pretty soon I left that place. I says, God, I am so blessed. I'm so blessed. I was so happy. I was overjoyed. I moved from complaining to rejoicing. You know, what a change. But Wesley goes on to say this. Beyond that, it was said that it was his desire not even to surround himself with others who would do so. Do what? Complain. 
So unpleasant would he find such company that it would be like tearing the flesh off his bones. He just goes, I can't handle being around people who are complaining and critical all the time. How many know that really does wear on a person? Oh, he said, that's so terrible. You know, you go, oh, pastor, I don't want to hear these words. I mean, complaining. You know, you think of these crazy Israelites. Well, why is complaining such a problem? Because it's an expression of our distrust of God. It basically says that God doesn't care about us. It means that we have in our hearts set on the wrong things. Isn't that true? I don't have this God. God goes, but it's the wrong thing for you. Your heart is set on the wrong thing. As a matter of fact, Paul writes about this incident in the wilderness. He said, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. You know what's sad? Some of us have our hearts set on the wrong things. That's why we're so unhappy. God wants to deliver you from that. God wants you to have your heart set on what's good, pleasing, pleasant, pure, righteous, good. Oh, but I need this, God. Yeah, but that's not healthy for you. Amen? You're going, man, this is really intrusive, Pastor. Yeah, I know it is. What does Moses do? We're going to see in a moment here. He prays. So why the test? We tend to trust ourselves and others. And what a crisis does is reveal what we're trusting in. That's all it does. And self-sufficiency is a myth that is quickly dispelled by crisis. The greater the crisis, the more you realize, I'm weak. And that's actually a good place to be. You go, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. God goes, I already know you can't do this. I've designed your life in order for you to depend on me. Isn't that beautiful? You know, because sometimes we go, well, we're looking at ourselves. You know what our biggest hang-up is? Well, what will people think of me? Can I really be responsible? I want people to think I'm amazing. And God goes, it's not about you. It's about me. And I want you to just start depending on me. And it'll change the way you respond in life. So the third level that shapes our lives is an awareness of God's compassionate care. Now notice these guys are questioning, does God care? Do you know, our understanding of who God is defines our character in our lives. If we see God as loving and faithful and all-powerful and kind and in control and guiding our steps, we're going to respond to life a lot differently than if we're questioning God's goodness, we're wondering where God is, right? Totally. And it all has to do with your understanding of who God is. It's so important that we get this straight in our minds. That's why I keep telling you over and over again, settle it in your hearts. God is the most loving, caring, amazing parent, but he's not going to ruin you or spoil you. He's going to take you through what needs to develop you. And we should be saying, Lord, I just thank you for being my father. I just thank you for loving on me. I just thank you for walking with me through life. I just thank you that you're shaping me and making me a better person than I've ever been before because of what you're doing inside of me. Now notice Moses' response. He prays, you know. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. By the way, don't you think God knew that he could handle the problem with water. Was that too big for God? No, big deal. God says, I'll change the water. How many know if you can turn water into wine, you can turn bitter water into sweet water? And he showed Moses what to do. He says, hey, there's a piece of wood over there. Grab it and chuck it in the water. You know, we're gonna change it. 
Now, I think it's a picture. It's kind of a type, isn't it? It's a type. And you know this word wood there actually can be translated tree. It can be translated branch, right? It's wood. The Septuagint translates it wood, but the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text, translates it tree. And threw a tree into the water. And it represents, I think, the tree that Jesus Christ died on. It speaks of the cross, how God can take our bitter experiences, and when we come to the cross with it, God can start showing grace in those situations. He can transform the bitter into something that's sweet and pleasant. You know, I can look back. I've been a Christian 42 years, so I can say this. I can look back at the deepest most painful, the most challenging, the most struggling moments, my failures. You know, I can look back on all of those moments back there. I can look back now and go, you know what? Those are the moments that God was shaping my life the most. In that pain and sorrow and difficulty, when I was you know, at, at loss, I was totally removed all self-sufficiency. I was totally broken. I was totally humbled. And God was working so powerfully in my life and literally changed me as a person in those moments. And I said to God, in probably one of the greatest moments in my personal life of consecration, I said, God, it doesn't matter anymore if there's only one person listening to me. I will be faithful to share your message, not my message. And I said that in in an amazing moment. It was 40,000 ministers singing and praising God. I was weeping before God. I said, God, I will serve you till the day I die. I don't care how hard it is. I don't care how difficult it is. I've just resigned myself to be faithful. You determine outcomes. I'll just do what you ask me to do. I'll tell you something. I had an encounter with God. It changed me. It shaped my life. It changed the way I saw ministry. It changed the way I relate to people. It changed outcomes in my life. Look at the response of God. Moses prays, and then you see God's response. God transforms that situation. I love it. How, do you, how are you going to respond to your place of crisis, a place of testing? Well, God instructs with a promise. Look at verse 25. Then the Lord issued a ruling and an instruction for them to put them to the test. You know that word instruction? It's the Hebrew word Torah. You know what Torah is? It's the first five books of the Bible, or it's also the law. But actually, Torah, you know, we think of it as rules. Can I just tell you it's more than that? It's instruction. Do you realize the Bible is an instruction manual? It's teaching you and I who God is, and it's teaching us who we are, and it's teaching us how we should live. And what's happening in our culture today is there's a huge identity crisis. Do you know that? People do not know who they are. You know, we say, why is that? Because God's out of the equation. They're confused on their gender. They're confused as to what their purpose in life is all about. There's so much confusion going on in our world today. And that's because they've taken God out of the equation. They've moved away from the instruction manual. Oh, listen to what he says here. It says here, the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. Who's putting them to the test? God is. It says, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God, and if you do what is right in his eyes, and if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. 
Now, this is an interesting text of Scripture, and I, I, I sat down and said, okay, what is this really saying? And I like what John Durnham, who's an Old Testament scholar, he says, the substance of the option Yahweh offers is set forth in terms of obedience and judgment. The standard accompaniments of Old Testament covenant making, indeed of covenant making in the ancient Near East. In other words, this is a covenant God's making with these guys. You get it? If you do this, I'll do this. And if you look in the Old Testament, that's the whole nature of the covenant. You read in the book of Leviticus, God says, if you do these things, I'll give you the land. If you do this, it will rain. If you do this, you will prosper. If you do this, you'll be the head and not the tail. But if you don't do these things, all of these curses will come on you. Okay, does everybody follow that? That's the nature of the Old Testament covenant, and we need to understand that. They are to take his requirements and his guidance seriously, pay close attention, commit attention to his voice, adopt his standard as the measure of what is right, obey his commands, and meet his requirements. I want to just take a time out and say something to us. Go back to the Garden of Eden. What is going on there? God says, if you will obey me in this, you'll have life. If you disobey me in this, you will have death. Did he not say that? Satan comes along and says, listen, if you eat of this tree, which God had forbidden, you'll be like God. In other words, you will now know good and evil. And you know what it's all about? It's an issue of who's going to be God. And every time you and I do our thing instead of obey God's word, we're playing God. And we're defining what we think is right and what we think was wrong. And the only problem with that is we're just not wise enough. Because when you and I make a mistake and redefine what right and wrong is, we experience death. And I don't mean death physically. Well, that could happen. But I'm talking about death in the sense that relationship with God is severed and we have these broken relationships with human beings because you and I become wise in our own eyes. We are playing God with our lives. And we're just not smart enough. Then he says, if you'll do that, he will spare them the harm of the diseases he heaped upon the Egyptians. He will not put any of those diseases upon Israel. What diseases is he talking about? I just need to say this, and then I'll close with a story. It's very important. You know, sometimes when we're interpreting Scripture, <clears throat> we try to apply it to everything. This actually applies, I believe, scholars believe, on the plagues that came on the Egyptians. They suffered diseases. God judged them. And how many know that when you study the Bible, that when Israel disobeyed God, God allowed plagues to invade them. And as a matter of fact, God will allow plagues to invade humanity when human beings sin grievously against God. Sure, of course. But can we say that if we obey God, no disease will come upon us? No, we cannot say that. As a matter of fact, if we did that, we would be like Job's comforters. And why would Job's comforters have such a problem with the fact that Job was sick and Job was maintaining he hadn't sinned. And I believe why they were so adamant wasn't because they were such great guys. I think they were fearful. And they were fearful of this. <clears throat> I cannot control God. I cannot control what God will do with my life. You see, it's really nice to believe, and I think a lot of Christians want to do this in our society today. We're trying to control God. If I do A, B, and C, God has to do X, Y, and Z. Can I tell you, God doesn't have to do anything. God is God. And what I'm suggesting to us tonight, and I'm stating it, I'm not just suggesting, I'm stating it. 
God will do what is ever necessary to make you and I like himself. And he makes no apology about that. And actually, ultimately, that's what's best. And as a matter of fact, this life is not all that we get. And this is only a temporary staging ground. This is a journey until we come into God's amazing presence where we will live with him forever and ever. It's amazing. So I'm going to close with a story. Young woman is paralyzed by a spinal tumor. She continued to be vibrant and helpful asset in her personal world. She raised two of her young girls, returned to university, received a master's degree in counseling. And this is the memory that her daughter wrote of her mother. This was in Reader's Digest. When I was older and had established a career in corrections, mother offered to teach creative writing at the penitentiary. I recall how the inmates would crowd around her wheelchair whenever she arrived and hung to her every word. Even when she could no longer go to the prison, she corresponded with the inmates. One day she gave me a letter to mail to a prisoner named Wayman. And I asked if I could read it before she posted, you know, put it in the envelope. And I said, fine, go ahead, she said, read it. And instead it stated it this way, Dear Wayman, I've been thinking about you often since receiving your letter. You mentioned how difficult it is to be locked behind bars, and my heart goes out to you. But when you say I cannot imagine what it's like to be in prison, I felt compelled to say to you, are mistaken. You see, there are different kinds of prisons, Wayman. When at age 31 I was awakened one day completely paralyzed, I was overwhelmed by a sense of being imprisoned in my body that would no longer allow me to run through the meadows or even pick up my children. For a long time I lay there asking myself whether life was worth living. It seemed I had lost everything that mattered. But then one day it occurred to me that I still had the freedom to make a choice. Would I smile at my children or would I weep? Would I rail against God or would I ask them to strengthen my faith? In other words, what would I do with the free will that was still within me? I decided to live as fully as I could to look for ways to transcend my physical limitations and expand my mental and spiritual boundaries. I would choose to be a role model for my children and I could either wither and die emotionally as well as spiritually or experience life at a new level. There are many kinds of freedom, Wayman. And when we lose one kind, we must look for another. You can be a role model for the younger inmates or you can mix them with the troublemakers. You can look at your bars or you can look through them. You can love God and seek to know him or you can turn your back on him. To some extent, Wayman, we are in this together. You see, we have a choice. We can believe that our God is a compassionate caregiver, working out his purposes in our life through every bittersweet experience, or else we can sink in the quicksand of our own hurt and pain, blaming those around us. And I know all about that because I grew up in a broken home, and I grew up filled with self-pity as a young person, and I discovered something very early. Self-pity is a very sad thing because it's focused on whom? Yourself. And you become a very little person. And when I became a follower of Christ, God worked on that aspect of my life and delivered me from that and moved me past myself and began to give me a purpose for a living that transcended my past pain. And you know what? God redeemed that past pain because I became a pastor. And when people came to me in dysfunction and brokenness, I had an empathy for them that a lot of people didn't have because I grew up understanding. Instead of judging people, 
I was more compassionate towards them and knew that there was hope in the redemptive nature of God was able to point people that way.